a six-figure contract, high six figures for my book. But the, some of these black authors, their books have won all kinds of awards and are were on the New York Times bestseller list, but they just didn't get decent contracts because because of the structure, because of the system does not want to uh, take, a, take a chance, so to speak, from their point of view. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Lisa Braxton is an Emmy-nominated former television journalist, an essayist, short story writer, and novelist. Her first novel, The Talking Drum, is about three young couples in the early 1970s and how they're affected when an urban redevelopment project takes over a neighborhood. Recently, The Talking Drum was selected by Shelf Bound Book Review Magazine as the overall winner of its 2020 Independently Published Book Award. She also received a 2020 Outstanding Literary Award from the National Association of Black Journalists. Her stories and essays have appeared in Vermont Literary Review, Black Lives Have Always Mattered, Chicken Soup for the Soul, and The Book of Hope. Welcome, 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 Lisa. It is so good to have you here. That's all good to be here. I'm extremely thrilled to have you. You are Lisa Braxton, just in case I forget to tell everybody. You are Lisa Braxton, and you are the author of The Talking Drum, which is a fiction, but it is based on real-life situations. And so I loved it. I really enjoyed the book. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and about your journey with the book and also the industry, the publishing industry and how it affects us all. But before we get into that, I want to know, and I know our listeners want to know what you are passionate about right now. I am passionate about having my voice be heard. I was a very shy child growing up. I was painfully shy. And when you're painfully shy and you're trying to um, be there and be part of the uh, playground activity and, and connect with other kids, they easily kind of um, step right over you because you're not talking mm-hmm. very much mm-hmm. and take advantage of you. And I found early on that I had power with my words, my written words. So that when I began writing, people were affected by my writing. Sometimes they would say they would cry, would make them think. And that's my way of being heard. And I feel passionate about the passion about being heard through the words, through my writing. I love that. So you found your outlet and that's great. The Talking Drum, this is your first novel? Yes, it is my debut novel. Yes. Nice. The overarching theme in the book, without giving away too much of what's happening, is that there's a community that is predominantly immigrant that has 
just sprung up in a in a fictitious town right of Bellport this is a fictitious town because I was like I don't think there's a Bellport Massachusetts <laughs> no <laughs> they so they kind of sprung up in Bellport Massachusetts and what's happening is now all of a sudden there's growth and there's gentrification and I know I seem to re- remember that you wrote did you write in here that this is something that happened or this it it parallels things that might have happened with your family can you tell us a little bit about that yes um my parents are from virginia and they grew up during segregation and during the 1950s they got married and they moved as part of the the great migration of african americans from the south to the north for better opportunities that they moved to an area, they moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut, a, a big booming factory city. And they lived in a working class neighborhood. And um, what they found out when they got there was that there were only certain sections of Bridgeport where they could rent because they were African-American. Mm-hmm. So um, working class area with other black people. And um, in time, they moved away from there, from their apartment and bought a house and had my had me, had my sister, and then my father had this dream to open up his own business. And um, after much discussion and taking courses and talking to people and getting my mother to be on board with it, he opened up, they opened up a clothing store, a high fashion men's clothing store back in the east end of Bridgeport in that same neighborhood. Things were going well for them for some time, but then after a while, their customer base began to um, diminish partially because the homes on the waterfront the multifamily houses, the working class homes were being taken by eminent domain for uh, future projects for gentr- to gentrify that area because Bridgeport suffered financially and at one point it was almost going to declare bankruptcy. So um, over the years there have been developments, a, um, a, a, a double A or triple A um, baseball team came to town and they have a, a stadium. And um, now on the waterfront, there is a, a upscale oyster house there's a marina, they're building um, condos for hopefully they wanna get people from, from New York to come up for the weekend and have their luxury condos there. So that means that a lot of the working class people, they, uh, they got moved out. And so my, my parents' business would diminish more and more and more over the years. And I also, when I was writing the talking drum, I would have conversations with people here in Massachusetts who would say, often would say, well, that happened to my family. That happens when I go back to my home and I go back to my neighborhood, it's not the same. The people there, they don't know each other. They, they, there used to be a sense of community, but that's not there anymore. So I found that that topic really struck a chord with uh, many people. I didn't intend to write a book that had the theme of gentrification. I was simply writing a book about a love story between a man and a woman who meet up in a, a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. But, and I think it was in my subconscious mind, this whole topic of displacement of people and how it affects them came into play into my subconscious. And also at my church in uh, Newton, my, the church is, is on the historical register and it was um, called the village. The neighborhood around it was a black neighborhood. And at that time uh, in the late sixties, the Mass Pike extension was brought out there and sliced right through the black neighborhood. And um, so the people who live there had to move. And I was on a history committee at the church with some of the people who lived there, who grew up there. And they were on the com- at the committee meeting reminiscing and crying decades later about how they lost so many of their, their friendships and on the fabric of their community, how because of discrimination, 
they couldn't just move to anywhere else in Newton. They were denied housing and had to move into Cambridge and other areas. And all of that really affected me. And I said, I need to write about this topic. I need to write about how gentrification, it has its merits and it's important. It can help to save cities and municipalities, but it also can hurt the people and also what the people can do to um, save themselves, to protect themselves in the face of gentrification. Right. Wow. You know, I, th- I don't think that people really understand a lot of times how much it affects communities, because when you are, for lack of a better word, corralled right into a particular area, you become a family with those people in that area. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, we need it. So we're going to do whatever we want. And then it's like, you have to move. And it's not as easy to move as people would think. You'd think, oh, well, we want to stay in this area. Let's just move to the next house. No, 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 no. You know, with redlining, uh, you can't just move because especially if you're black or another person of color, there are only certain places that you can go. Hey, are you ready to move your company in that direction of more equity inclusion so that you can attract the diversity that you're looking for? Fantastic. I would love to work with you. To find out how we can work together, go to sedrolamaruska.com backslash work dash with dash Sadie. Or just look in the show notes. The link will be there. Hope to see you soon. What's also tough is that some people who are working class, they just can't afford to purchase the building. They can't afford to purchase their apartment or the building. And if they are not owners, then they don't have any sway. They don't have any control over uh, what happens to their home. And that's one thing that I brought out in the, in the novel. If you see um, some of the characters yes. and how they're affected. So um, there are a lot, of, a lot of things that it's just not moving to the next block, as you say. It can be very emotionally tough on people. And some people just don't survive it. They don't. They don't, exactly. And you can understand why, because it's, it's just another form of, of theft of people, right? Yeah. Or of yes. just, you're, you're, you're stripping something away and you're not giving them any other options. And sometimes, you know, they say, well, we're giving them money, but are you giving them the amount of money that they really need in order to be okay in another place? Or are you just saying, well, we're giving them what this place seems to be worth mm-hmm. now versus what it's going to be worth later when you put in whatever you're going to put in and then you're going to jack up all the prices. So now all of a sudden it's going to be worth 10 times what you decided you wanted to pay to these people who you displaced, right? And one thing that I, I found through my research is that people were displaced and they were given um, vouchers to move into public housing but they would move into public housing and the public housing was inferior. The elevators would break down because um, inferior steel was being used to make the elevators because they knew that it would be people of color moving in. So uh, on down the pipeline, um, services and construction was not done as well as it should have been. And in some instances, the vouchers were given and then by the time the person would get down to claim um, their place, oh, well, we, we, we've already filled up. And that happened, you might see, if, if you read um, in the novel, the character Kadim, 
toward the end, he has to move in with a relative in Rhode Island because his voucher didn't get him a home, didn't get him a place. So that's not something I read about. It was very interesting. So I included that in the novel as well. Yeah, you know, it was, it, I found myself feeling really sad, feeling really angry, <laughs> you know, feeling hopeful, feeling, there were so many different feelings, right, that I, that I was going through as I was reading the book, because I could see and I could relate, and I, and I know some of the, the way that some of these things happen, and I go, oh, you know, it's so infuriating sometimes, because you go, why does it, why is it that way? Why does it have to be that way? Why can't people just, why can't people care more, right? If that's the right word to, to say, why can't people care more about other humans, right? And then it comes down to, are you being seen as human or are you just being seen as someone who is less than human and can be easily displaced just like they did to the natives here? in this country, right? I was going to say, we've seen this throughout history. Yeah. In this country and other countries as well. Yes, absolutely. And even in native African countries, mm -hmm. they've just decided, you know, oh, this place is rich. We're taking, we're taking it from these people. <laughs> and it's, you're going, how is that even okay? Right? You know, to step on other people and to take your place there and then pretend or decide that they, they weren't, that they, they didn't have, they're not entitled to it, even though you took it from them. So yeah, it's all yeah. very strange. And unfortunately, the fact that we're asking these questions is an indication that there is really no solution to it. We can't get into the root of, of people's hearts and change them. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. Right. It really is unfortunate. And it is really a very rooted thing you know it's got very deep roots that run you know which is why it bothers me sometimes when people are like well why don't they just move I'm like is it really that easy even for you who has means to just move to just go somewhere else it's not that easy for people to just get up and move from their the communities that they're in where they've established connections with people to just say okay fine no problem I'm just gonna leave because it's not it's not that way as in the publishing, you got this book published now, you got it published through a publishing company in Canada. Yes. Is there, was there a rhyme or reason for that? Uh, the reason was that they gave me a contract and they were the only ones <laughs> giving me a contract. <laughs> After I finished the novel, I went to grad school to get a master's degree in creative writing. And to get my degree, I had to produce a manuscript. So the manuscript was the talking drum. And at the end of that, I was shopping it around to different literary agents and some would like parts of it, but they felt it really needed a whole lot more work. So this went on for years, me soliciting agents. And then I started soliciting small presses and the same thing. Well, we like this, we like that, but it needs more work or it's not right for us. And I reworked it and revised it based on the feedback I was getting. And so that was 2010 when I graduated years ago going by. And I was at a conference of, um, that included a book expo of small presses represented there. And I went, I went by to every booth representing a press who I previously talked to. And I asked them to relook at my manuscript and some agreed to do that. And so then I was 
toward the back of the expo hall, there was a, a table for Inanna publications. And I saw that they were in Canada. So I walked past them thinking, well, they're Canadian. They, they wouldn't be interested. But then I walked, then I thought, well, I've gotten, you know, no, no real takers in the past two days. I've been here at this three-day conference. <laughs> back to her, back to the table and talked to her. And she said, um, I like your story. I gave her the elevator speech. I like your story. It sounds interesting. Uh, mail me your manuscript. And so I said, really, can I just email it to you? No, 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 mail me all the whole thing. So I got a copy made of 364 pages and I mailed it to Canada. You had to do the, 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 the international form at the post office, mailed it off. Months later, she emailed me and said that her board of directors reviewed it and they, they loved it and they wanted to publish me. So what I found out, realized a little bit later was that Inanna Publications is a feminist press and their mission is to publish women authors uh, often who are overlooked by their traditional presses. So that press champions the cause of women. I don't know if I would have found a publisher other, otherwise or a publisher who would have treated my story the way I wanted it to be treated. Mm -hmm. So um, that's why you know, they published me because they were the only ones <laughs> that said yes. So that's why that's, um, that's why that's happened. Wow. Well, you got connected with a publisher who is a champion for women, which is fantastic. So that, that's great. The, so in the publishing industry, you know, I started a book club to read Black authors. So it's, so those are the only authors that we're reading. It's fiction, nonfiction, whatever it is, but we're reading Black authors. And the reason that I did that is probably because of a reason that you know all too well, that Black authors, even when they are picked up by publishers, they are not given the same marketing push as other authors. Can you talk to us a little bit about the publishing industry or, you know, what you found to be your reality or the reality as it may be in the publishing industry? Yes. Um, since the, the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, there's been a spotlight on many industries to see um, how diverse they are, how fair they are, and publishing was, is among them. And a, a study came out uh, not too long ago by Lee and Lowe Publishers that talked about how diverse is the publishing industry. And I pulled some information on the executive level. The publishing industry is 86% white. When it comes to sales, the sales departments, 83% white. Editorial, 82% white. Now, overall with publishing, um, African, -American, African Americans on staff make up 4%. Asian Americans, 7%. Latinx, 6%. Now with women, there's a high percentage, 78% of the publishing industry is women, but you don't see very much diversity. And one problem with that is that these are the gatekeepers. These are the people who decide what projects uh, get the green light and which ones don't. And these are also the gatekeepers of, the, um, of editorial. So I've talked to a number of African-American and um, Asian-American writers who had to, with the editors, push back and say, I need this language in this story. And they've dealt with editors who try to scrub clean the grammar as an example. Okay. And some have said to even whitewash it. And so you, you, see, you see this going on where black writers and others of color have to often push back if they can even get in the door. 
there was a um, hashtag, which I don't recall, a, a publishing paid me hashtag on Twitter that was a year or two ago, where some of the um, authors were saying, let's put it out there. How much did I get in my contract? And there are some black authors who um, got a contract for $40,000. But then there are some others, uh, white authors who said, I got a, a six figure contract, high six figures for my book. But the, some of these black authors, their books have won all kinds of awards and are, were on the New York Times bestseller list, but they just didn't get decent contracts because, because of the structure, because of the system does not want to uh, take, a, take a chance, so to speak, from their point of view. So there are a lot of issues that are faced. And um, one that's really um, big right now is cultural appropriation, problematic cultural appropriation. I think that as a writer, it's important to know how to write about the world that's not your world, to go beyond your own sphere of understanding and learn about other worlds and other people and, and other, other audiences and write those characters into your work. But sometimes people don't do that homework and they will um, write a very stereotypical character or just um, do a superficial, I was reading a book couple of years ago, one of these beach reads and the uh, author, she's cranked out, um, I don't know how many books she's done, maybe 10 to 15 books. If I mentioned her name, you probably would have heard of her, but um, she had a black character in her book, but he could have been anything. I mean, he could have been, it just, she just decided that this character was a black character, but there was nothing identifying him. It was superficial, cardboardy. There was nothing about his background and he could have been anything, you could have been white, you could have been anything. So it was very insulting that, yeah. Okay, let me squeeze into a black character so I look like I'm doing the right thing, but I don't really care to develop this person at all. That goes on. And uh, what's really troublesome is in children's fiction, children's literature, when you see that happen mm -hmm. in adult literature, when you see stereotypes, hopefully the adults know, okay, this person didn't do enough research, but children are so impressionable and all they have is what you're giving to them that sometimes the books that they read are very stereotypical and that, that causes harm. It causes children to grow up and to think that, okay, children who become police officers, well, I see this black man getting out of the car. Let me go ahead and just blow his brains out. I mean, it's, unfortunately you see those things, these things happen. It's a very serious thing. It's, it's very serious. So there are some cases where there are some publishing houses that are now doing they're, well, they have been doing internships, and they're 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 boards of um, they're forming boards of directors, separate from the regular boards of directors that oversee diversity, equity, and inclusion. So there's talk going on. There are committees forming, and we do see some of that happening, which is good. But it has publishing has a long way to go. It really does. A lot of industries, I think, have a long way to go, <laughs> because yes. if you consider how entrenched this all of this is, it's, it's incredible. You know, I don't think about it on the big picture a lot because I feel like it, it can be very overwhelming. And so you kind of have to just focus your, your efforts wherever you can, you know, when you can, but definitely publishing is one of those areas. And I do remember that hashtag going by. And I remember people saying, oh my God, look at the disparities between authors of color, black authors, authors of color are getting and what white authors are getting. And 
the lengths that black authors have to go through. I mean, you can get all the accolades, all the, all the awards and still, well, we're just not sure if people want to read your story, right? That's, that's a lot of the thing that goes on in Hollywood. We're not sure people want to see that story. We're not sure people want to hear that story. That story is not mainstream enough. When in actuality, when they actually put these things out, people gravitate and just ingest them as if, oh my, as if it was, you know, land waiting for water. It's like, it just sucks it up. The Black Panther was an example of that because I was in the theater watching that like a sponge just, and and I never got filled. It just, just, you know, I just love seeing those images. The story was great. And it, it, I mean, it did so well that it shows that people universally from whatever background were interested in seeing that story. Yeah, it needs to be done. And there've been a, a lot of um, talks done now and books about the economic, um, the economic um, loss because of lack of diversity, let's say in Hollywood, but still people, there's some people who feel that they don't care about the, the lack of um, the, the loss. They wanna keep things status quo, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. So even if you're losing millions of dollars because you you won't allow more diversity, that doesn't change people's minds, not enough. Right. Well, you know, the hope is that more people will want to, to change rather than not, because those people who want to change and who are changing will, will definitely reap the rewards, right? And those people who choose not to or who don't want to will then watch the others you know, grow while they sit and hold on to their, their, whatever it is that they're holding on to. I always liken it to, you know, you can't keep your foot on someone's neck on the ground and soar. There's no way to do both. So you have to decide that you're going to let them go and let them soar as well as you so that everybody can, can, can do better. So the publishing industry is a lot like that. It's as if Nobody has stories to tell and nobody has the right, pers- the right perspective except for white authors, which is lunacy because mm-hmm. there's, the diversity is what makes things so much more interesting, right? Who you study, right? Traditionally, only white authors have been studied in school. So we've only gotten one perspective of how things have been or were or, you know, what have you. But when you start adding the other perspectives, you, instead of this paper cardboard flat view of things and of history, you get a more rounded view of things, which makes it all that more interesting, I think. Yeah, and I see where the New York Times has uh, apologized for the way it has done their obituaries historically, and they've gone back because they ignored people of color. They ignored um, all these Black people who had deserved to have their obituaries in the New York Times. They've gone back historically, and they've, they're doing them now. And by people not seeing those obituaries all along as, as time was playing out, they have this, this view of, of you know who the accomplished and important people are and who are the ones that we just ignore. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that the New York Times is doing that. That's a really interesting yeah. uh, thing for them to be doing as well. They're going back and they're, they're doing that. Yeah. So it's, it's a really 
it's an important thing to talk about. It's important for people to realize and to understand that when we're talking about the things that hold us back and you, and you're talking about, well, why don't you just, (laughs) right? It's like, oh, we would just, if it wasn't, if there wasn't so much pressure put on us not to, you know, to, to, to not do what we need to do. Um, I know that there are a lot of companies right now who are doing more paid internships versus unpaid internships because an unpaid internship is more likely to get a white person into that internship because their family has more of a capability to manage, maintain them while they're doing that versus another family of color, black person, right? right? So now if you do it, make it a paid internship, I'm not gonna cry I'm not, I will be able to get in there, right? As well as others would be able to get in there because now I can not only gain the, the experience that I need, but I can get the, the, the financial support that I need without being, you know, without killing myself, without feeling like I have to work three or four jobs plus the internship in order to, to do that and to move forward. And this is the leg up that a lot of people don't realize that they have, right? They don't realize how much of a disparity there is and how much harder it is when things are things like that are not taken into consideration. And that's why groups like, uh, there's a, a group called We Need Diverse Books, and they've been uh, pushing to get uh, more diverse books come out of the publishing houses. Mm-hmm. And they also do a, uh, an internship. I don't know if it's paid or not, but they do an internship that that's new to get more people of color into, um, into the publishing environment. You know, I think because of the way that, and I think I was just talking to someone about this, but I think because of the way that we've been socialized to, to you got to do something that's going to make you some money, right? We haven't often thought of, writing or being an artist or, you know, the, those things that are not traditionally professional, so to Mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's important to try to encourage kids, not just to go into engineering or the, or math or, or medicine, medicine or law or what have you, but also encourage them to do the other things and to create a system that is going to support that, right? So if my daughter wants to write and I encourage her to write, there has to be a system in place that will help her along the way, you know, call that writing career, make it so that she can sustain herself on that, right? Just so it's a slow changing process, but I think it's, it's churning. And so we have to keep the churn going. We can't, we can't let up the pressure. We have to keep, keep it going. Well, yeah, I think you're more optimistic than I am because uh, <laughs> um, what I've been reading is, is uh, some Black um, people who worked in publishing years ago, back in the 60s, 70s, who are still around. And they say it's, our, it's the moment, the moment for Black people and the, um, the window is opened because of what's gone on in this country in the past couple of years, but it's gonna close again as it always does. Yeah. So it's a pendulum. And right now the pendulum is swinging one way as it did during the civil rights movement and it will 
swings shut. Yeah. Window. And it always, it seems to always happen cyclically throughout history. Yeah. Well, I'm, and I know that to be true. And I, you know, that's in the back of my mind. Don't think it's not (laughs) in the back of my mind, but I'm hoping that with the, because when I think of myself as 14 year old, I didn't think of the things that my son is thinking of now as a 14 year old. I didn't, I wasn't as active or as activism then as my son is is putting himself into being now and so i'm hoping that the younger people those who have been galvanized and those who have been speaking up and speaking out and doing that will continue to do that so that they can keep the pressure going right because we're we're kind of on our way out no we're not we still have (laughs) we still have time Not some time. So, you know, but that we can get them to continue the, the pressure that, that is needed, you know, clearly, because otherwise we have to, we have to keep, we have to keep, we the, have pressure to keep the pressure. We, you can't know, lose, we can't lose more ground. We got to keep it going. Yes. And I was, and I was saying to my husband too, that it's really interesting to me that as I was growing up, I always heard about Martin Luther King and I always heard about Malcolm X and, and it always seemed like a very distant thing from me. And yet Martin Luther King Jr. was killed the year that I was born, which means it was not that far away, but it always was made to seem that far, right? Like that was a long time ago, you know, that was forever ago. And so I'm hoping that people will realize that it wasn't that long ago, right? Someone wrote... Um, you know, uh, Prince Philip died and someone wrote, oh, you know, he, he died and, but they were thinking about it and they were going, you know what? We were thinking that they were the children of the colonizers, but they weren't. They were the colonizers, right? They were the ones who went into Africa. They may not have been the ones who were in the slave trade, but they were still the colonizers who went and, you know, and they're just now dying off. So if that's the case, that's how close it was. That's how close it was. Yeah, it wasn't that far off, no. Not that far off. Mm -mm. So is there another book in the works for you, Lisa? (laughs) (laughs) I've been asked that, well, I'm surprised you didn't ask me if there's a sequel to this one. Which, uh, which there is not. And so what I've told people is that, you know, these characters are for the, the uh, reader to decide in their mind what happens what after the end of the book. But I am working on another, another story, another novel. It's uh, historical fiction back into the 1850s in Boston in the um, Beacon Hill area, which had a Black neighborhood. Mm. And I'm focusing on those, those Black free individuals and also there are escaped slaves who are there as well. And there are some slave catchers who are on horseback riding up through Beacon Hill through the cobblestone streets looking for people and they're abolitionists. So I'm focusing a story on, on that era and those people. Wow, that sounds really interesting because I do know, I did kind of know that Beacon Hill did have um, a black population at one point, but now it's not 
not so much at all. <laughs> There's so much, it, it, it's such rich history and I've been working on this for a few years now. And the more I read, the more I want to read, but I've got to really focus myself and, and get the writing done. But it's, it's a very interesting era in the history of Boston. So when, when did you feel that writing was going to be the thing that you were going to do? Because I know you said that you were a shy, shy child, and then you realized that your words on the page could move people. So when did you, if you decided, you know, consciously that that's what was going to happen, when did that happen? Um, it, it never really did. I would, I was the editor of the school news, of the college newspaper, editor-in-chief, and students would read my stories and they would comment on them and, and talk to me about them. And I could see where I was having an influence on people. And I, I did pro professional <clears throat> writing for a few years at a newspaper in, in Richmond, Virginia. And I also did um, radio for a while and television. And um, I wanted to write creatively, but it didn't happen until I left journalism and I had time to put into it. So when I hear what you say about reading my novel and the characters and you've thought about them since and they've stayed with you moments right now like that reaffirm for me that yes maybe um i can do this maybe i do have the skill to 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 be a writer so it's it's just kind of evolved over time yeah what so what is it that you do now while you're writing your other novel <laughs> well i was yeah i was working full-time uh, at a nonprofit, a fire safety organization in Quincy. And that job ended uh, last year. So about a year and two months ago, my department was downsized. And since then I've been teaching writing classes at a writing center, teaching memoir writing, writing your legacy letter. That's a three hour workshop where, and it's, it's actually has a lot of interest where students will come in and mostly they're, they're older students and write a letter that will be passed on to gen the generations after them about their wisdom, what they've learned in life, what they want uh, others to know, their, their, their grandchildren, et cetera, grandchildren, nieces, nephews. Because even though like for instance, with my niece and nephew, they're uh, teenagers and, and my nephew is in college and my niece is in high school, junior in high school, they know me. I mean, I was there the day they were both born you know, my parents and I got in the car, I went down to, you know, where they, they lived and we were there, held them. I played with them, but do they really, really know me? They don't know my inner thoughts, my inner feelings. And so those are the kinds of things in this legacy letter that my students talk about. They will write about the, the, key, the, the, the interior thoughts that you have and feelings that you have that you really don't share with anyone, but you want to share with the, the later generations. I've also taught not short stories, it's essays, writing your essay. So I've taught an, a six-week essay class, and that's been enjoyable too. So I've been doing that, and I wrote a script for, I did some script writing for a, a church that was doing it, they're doing their history program for Juneteenth, and they wanted me to write a script about the history of the church. It's the first African-American church in the D.C. area, in D.C., back, oh gosh, many decades before the Civil War. So I, I did a script for them. So I've done those things, but I'm about to start a full-time job in a couple of weeks. I'll be back in the job force in a couple of weeks. Right. Wow, that all sounds really interesting, especially the legacy writing, letter writing. It's not yeah, something I mean, I've ever thought of. 
any, but I think anyone of any age can do it. I mean, would be interested, but it really becomes interesting for people as they get older and they see themselves, they have, they feel they have less time left to live than they, there's more years behind them. And they start thinking about that. Right, right. Wow. Okay. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would have liked for me to ask that you would like to answer right now? Well, um, let me see. Uh, you could ask me about how um, the, the immersion technique I use to learn about cultures to, to write my, write my, uh, my story. Yes, please share, share. Well, I, I have a character, Omar, who's a professional drummer. As you, if you've read about Omar, he's from Senegal and he's a professional drummer. So I took drumming classes. I went to school, I went to adult education and I took six weeks of African drumming lessons. I took some master classes with a master drummer from West Africa. And part of Omar's swagger is um, based on this instructor. And also I, I found a Senegalese restaurant in Boston and went there and told the owner what I was doing. And she gathered many of her friends who are from Senegal who, who, who've moved here. At, and talked. To, I got together with them and talked to them about their culture, what it was like coming to the U.S. I tried many of the dishes that she prepared from the menu, and I tried some dishes at home in my own kitchen, and they were a disaster, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have, I don't have it. I'd have to really, I, I made a dish with lime. I think it's in the novel, a chicken and lime dish. It's called something, Yasa Gwinar, I think it's called. And I put too many limes in it, and it was just really, really bad. And I and I and I had my husband taste it, and he said, "Well, it, it's just not very good, Lisa." And <laughs> I ended up putting, pouring um, broth, chicken broth in to try to dilute the lime. I put, I made some rice and put that in there to dilute the lime, and nothing worked. <laughs> and then I had to eventually just throw the whole thing out. Oh my gosh! <laughs> that was an experience. Yeah. I, I have a, a better appreciation of drumming now because drumming, I thought, well, African drumming, you're just bang, 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 bang. Oh, no, you're not. Those moves are very intricate. They're very intricate. And um, when I, going back to that, that master class with the master drummer, we, we, a whole bunch of us got together in, in a city hall chamber. It's a huge place to drum. And they, all these people were into drumming. And I was just a, a person wanting to write a novel and learn to drum. And every time he would walk around to inspect what we were doing based on the, the movements that he said, and copy me, he'd stop at me because I kept messing up. <laughs> and finally, I said, I'm not a drummer. I'm just learning to drum to write a novel. At that point, he just smiled and left me alone. But every time he had to stop, he would stop the whole class and put their hand, his hand up and have them all, you know, everybody hush. Let me work with her. He's working with, <laughs> working with me. Oh my goodness. So I developed an appreciation of drumming. Wow. I think that's amazing. But that's, I think that that's a great way to, to do it, to kind of immerse yourself. Yeah, into immerse it. yourself in it whatever it is that you're reading about. And, and that's what you kind of talked about. You said, you know, people can write about things, but they need to, they need to go and immerse so that they're not being this, this paperboard, you know, it's not a paperboard character, right. a stereotypical right. character, but it is actually a character that has some depth and that has, you know, that has some roots behind it and in, 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 in into it. So I like that you, that you did that. And plus you had, the um your parents story so you kind of weaved these in and got what you didn't have to put in to put together with what you did have which is fantastic 
Yeah, real life experiences as well as ones I acquired from taking lessons or eating, you know, the food. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So what I'm going to, so where can people find your book? Well, they can find the book at, uh, well, Amazon has everything these days, amazon.com, bookshop.org, or also uh, barnesandnoble.com. And um, those are the three main outlets that I, that I know of. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I will definitely put a link to it for bookshop.org because I like that one because it supports local bookstores. Yes. Yes. So I will put the link to it in the show notes so that everyone can grab a copy of your book. And before I let you go, what I want to ask you my final question, which is what is your favorite dish? My favorite dish, and it's so rich that I only eat it once every so often, is um, steak pizziola. That's my favorite dish. Steak Steak pizziola. So it's it's a nice, large steak. Um, might be a New York porterhouse. And it has onions and tomatoes and maybe a little bit of cheese on it and garlic and basil. It's an Italian dish and it's pretty much a combination of steak and pizza, but it's more steak than pizza. But it's this <laughs> delicious steak with this tomato sauce and, and all the other ingredients I just mentioned. And when I was, I was at NYU for a summer in a publishing program and there was a, a restaurant in Greenwich Village that I would go to to have that meal. And so every so often I, I go and have that. It's just so, so delicious. That's my favorite, my most decadent dinner meal that I will eat. Yeah. I've never heard of it, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> what, what, is your, what is your favorite dish? My favorite, well, you know, for me, my favorite dish, I love potatoes. So I'll have them any way you give them to me. So, you know, scallop, baked, mashed, fries, whatever. Just oh, potato soup. I do. I love potato soup. (laughs) So do I. I I made that and it came out very, very good, actually. Okay. Yeah, I haven't tried that making it yet myself, but I might have to do that. Yeah, that's my favorite. Well, thank you so much for being here with me on Diversity Dish, Lisa. It has been such a pleasure and I am so excited about sharing your book with everyone. Well, thank you so much. And I'm just so thrilled that you read my book and just just makes me feel very good that you like my that you're investing in my characters that's very flattering hey did you enjoy that episode if so please leave a review it would mean the world but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it in which case it would be awesome if you help support my work over at patreon the link is in the show notes see you soon